we want to listen to this last piece? Cool. Sure. This one is Night. From Microsoft, this is In Culture. I'm Becca DiGregorio. And I'm Todd Whitney. What if I told you the piece we just heard sounds different every day? Like, it's always changing. The sounds rearrange. Well, first I'd say that that's mighty tight. And second, I'd ask how. Fair question. And I kind of want to hold off answering it until later in the episode. It has to do with technology. Classic. And the artist, Juliana Barwick, is just one of three people we spoke with for this episode about music and how artists are using technology to push the boundaries of their sound. And I mean that literally. This is about blurring the line between music maker and the music listener. I love that. Our favorite artists are more accessible nowadays than ever before. I mean, they're constantly posting on social media, dropping new music through streaming services, and touring incessantly. But on this episode, what we want to do is show you how artists and listeners can interact on a more fundamental level, within the music itself. I'll start with someone who truly straddles music and technology. My name is Peter Chilvers. I'm a musician and uh, software designer. And most of my work revolves around um, various projects with Brian Eno, uh, almost all of which involve finding some unusual way to use technology to uh, make art better. For those of you who don't know, Brian Eno is a bit of a legend in music. As a producer... He's helped shape the sound of artists like The Talking Heads, David Bowie, and U2. But he's also got an experimental streak. Solo albums like Music for Airports and Discrete Music laid the foundation for ambient music in the 70s and pushed the boundaries of composition in popular music. We might not even be talking about the kind of projects we're digging into on this episode were it not for Brian's innovations. And in recent years, Peter has played a big role in what he does. He's his music technologist. That's his actual title. Brian isn't himself a technologist. He doesn't know how to program. He understands the ideas of what can be done with computers and can, I think, see further into that. And because I'm a musician, I can see what he's trying to do. Peter was a computer programmer through the 90s, working on video games. At some point, by very lucky chance, uh, a mutual friend introduced me to Brian Eno and... I started working on a computer game called Spore, which was a very fascinating, huge, open-ended computer game. We needed to tackle all sorts of ways of creating music that would just float endlessly in space, really. So that got me working with Brian, and we became friends while doing that, and I, I basically didn't leave the studio after that. Pretty much anything that involved a computer, we did together. Brian had long experimented with technology in his music, 
But in Peter, he found someone who could really push him further. And in Brian, Peter found someone who could push him too. So it's kind of like some new age producer-musician partnership? Yeah, sort of. But he says it's a real back and forth when generating ideas. Brian comes up with something. Peter says it's not possible. Brian insists on trying. Peter discovers it is possible. And back again. And they have mutual creative interests too. On my first trip to Brian's studio, he knew I was interested in generative music. Generative music is a system that creates music. Music that evolves itself over time and changes. Brian's been at this for years, experimenting with different methods. Peter described one example where Brian would queue up a bunch of CD players and play a different piece of music on each, with varying lengths. Very retro. Yeah. And they'd all have just different little elements of a composition on. So one might just have some bells on that came in occasionally. One might have mostly silence and just the occasional sort of washes of string noise. But by this very simple technique, you'd get quite complex music. Now, this was obviously very clunky. Brian eventually moved this endeavor to computers, where he could create a more sophisticated set of rules governing his generative compositions. And this work led Brian to ideas that weren't even on his creative radar, like the idea that your audience wouldn't just listen to a generative composition, but actively participate in it. And that's where Bloom comes in. If you haven't heard of Bloom, well, put as simply as possible, it's an application that allows you to trigger musical sounds through touch and visual cues. It's a smartphone app these days, but it wasn't always. The project took seed almost right when Peter and Brian began working together. We'd had a meeting in the studio, he'd showed me a few of his techniques, and I kind of came home and played around with um, some software in the studio. This was on on a PC using a mouse. So whenever you clicked on the screen, um, you'd see just a shape expand and sort of mutate. And um, that immediately felt like a, an interesting way to make music. It was quite a, quite a natural experience to just simply click a mouse on the screen, have a sound occur. But having these quite random elements, a person clicking on the screen, triggering a sound, it echoing, and it all being in the right sort of key and using nice sounds, which Brian had designed, the user feels like they're creating the piece. They feel at the heart of it. That's something very, very unusual, I think, in music. And all of this development predated smartphones and tablets. When the mid-2000s arrived, putting touchscreens into wide use, it seemed like the arrival of technology perfectly aligned with the aims of the project. A mouse click on a PC would become a screen tap on something that lived in your pocket. Bloom was ready for release. So it launched on smartphones. This kind of experience kind of game. Kind of an album? Definitely an album of some sort. Now, Bloom could have stopped there as a hard-to-categorize app, but... Whenever a new technology comes along, we'll think, well, what's possible with this now? What out of the things we've done in the past could we do with this new technology? So when virtual reality, augmented reality, when these came along, then immediately we started getting very interested in Bloom again. And the HoloLens became one of the uh, very interesting first launch points for this. So... What happens next? We're in Brian's studio. I think it was a December evening, so it was quite dark outside. And that meant anything we did on the HoloLens just lit up beautifully in the room. So we had all these little orbs floating around. I remember wandering around the room, tapping the air and 
being quite enchanted by the experience. It's hard to explain to someone who hasn't actually put on a HoloLens, but just how compelling seeing a shape in front of you hovering in the air is <laughs> that you technically know is not real but you still want to go and touch it I, I never in the whole time I was developing on the HoloLens stopped trying to touch these things I was creating in, this, in space Enter Bloom Open Space a kind of Bloom live performance that thing happening on your phone screen suddenly happening all around you at a warehouse in Amsterdam Peter and Brian created a space enclosed by giant projection screens. About a dozen guests at a time donned hollow lenses, walked inside, and started building a bloom composition together. They'd start tapping, and you'd see a little cloud of blooms around them. You'd be tapping, you'd see clouds of blooms. The sound you're making would be appearing on the screens. And you suddenly realize you're all part of a big collaborative piece of music. No one person is a soloist. No one person is more important than the other. Uh, but there's something very nice. You see people laughing together, actually deliberately trying to produce blooms in the same space or creating little towers and little clouds around them. I'd imagine they get a lot of reactions and compositions. Yeah, and apparently that was the beauty in it. Peter says some people ran around the room, tapping everywhere and making as many blooms as they could. Others hung back a little. The software kept everything in check, making sure the music never got completely out of hand but the audience itself was in the driver's seat. Without them, the room would have been silent. But Peter says a big motivation behind Bloom Open Space is to put this very specific experience in front of people and have them enjoy it for its own sake. Slow down a little, unplug. But not really, because you're, like, wearing a hollow lens. <laughs> Good point. But this concept of shifting focus, it's powerful. I feel we're in the in the middle of an attention war, really, at the moment, there's just so many things trying to grab your attention. And so to go into a space and just do one thing, that's quite refreshing, to just calm down, to not be checking your phone, hopefully not taking selfies. That was quite, quite nice. Peter Chilvers and Brian Eno used emerging tech to build on the kind of music they've been making for a long time. But what happens when an artist gets the opportunity to crack open their music for the first time? Hi, my name is Matthew Deere, and I'm a myriad of things. Matthew, who everyone calls Matt, is a producer who makes everything from synth pop to big room techno tracks. Like anyone making electronic music, technology is a part of his art, but he'd never call himself a technologist first and foremost. I, I don't open the hood of my instruments very often. <laughs> Um, I'm not that kind of a tinkerer. But in 2015, Matt got a pitch to present music in a way he'd never thought of before. As a songwriter, he'd stood in front of a crowd and fed off of its synergy while he played his songs. And as a DJ, he'd create a type of immersive experience every weekend in nightclubs. But this commission he got, he really wouldn't need to be present at all for this performance. I think I hung around for the first like 15 minutes or so um, until one of the ushers said, sure, you have to leave. Uh, other people want to check it out. Okay, now what are you talking about? So picture this. You walk through a nondescript door right off of a busy downtown street in New York City. Everything's darkly colored. Nothing but blacks and grays. And as your eyes adjust... And you start to notice that there's a, a whole bunch of stuff there. There's nets on the wall. There's, there's scrim, which is like a really thin fabric that you can kind of see through, kind of not. Um, there's lights. 
and you start to hear something, you start to hear some sound. It's very, very ambient, very amorphous. You're inside Delka, an immersive sound experience which had a limited run at the New Museum a few years ago. Visitors stepped inside of Matt's music and could control the sound landscape from within, touch the fabric walls, pull on some of the rope, and the music would just shift. You start to realize that other people are touching some things and then starting to interact with the actual space. And then you realize, oh, okay, well, maybe what I'm doing here is controlling some of the sound. Uh, and that's what it was doing, you know? So you start to just play with things and you start to touch things and you realize that you can make sounds louder and quieter, faster, slower by touching certain parts of the experience. Matt worked with a team of creative technologists to connect his sound to his audience's actions. They use Connect, a Microsoft device that reads your body and assigns certain functions, certain movements. So basically, it turns your whole body into a controller. This was the thing they developed for Xbox, right? Yeah, same technology. But a couple years ago, folks started to realize they could use the Kinect for all kinds of projects. Scanning for 3D printing, interactive dance installations. And that's part of the reason why Matt was asked to do this in the first place. To put this technology to work in a musical capacity. So if you raise your hand in the air, you can make that do something. If you push on something, you can tell the cameras to look for that and to translate that into data that then could be sent to something that I did, sound-wise. So as guests move through the space, pressing on the stretchy fabric walls and playing with the rope structures, an army of connects translated those manipulations into sounds and musical motifs from Matt's composition. And the piece would take shape in a way that was totally unique to those in the room. You kind of knew a lot of the magic tricks, but you had to let people figure those out for themselves. And I'm, I'm guessing now that you think about that, I mean, probably half of the things weren't really even used the way that we thought they would be used. <laughs> which, which is, that's completely fine. That's how it goes. That's art. Delco was just a moment in Matt's career. The scale and quirks of the project meant that he couldn't take it on tour. And he's gone back to the usual schedule of writing albums, playing shows, and DJing. But Matt's brush with interactive technologies and making his audience an integral part of his music... He says that Delco was a high point for him artistically, and a project that's forced him to consider his listeners in ways he had never done before. Delco's like the extreme version of taking everything apart and opening it up and letting people inside of it. It was definitely an evolution of my career that I don't think I will top in that section of my career in terms of experimenting with light, sound, and the human body. There's, there's, no, there's no greater achievement than I think that one. Which brought me to this musician, Juliana Barwick's home studio in a quiet corner of Los Angeles. Who we heard at the beginning, right? Yes. I'm finally getting around to explaining what we heard at the top. Now, you probably heard some vocal lines in that track. Most of her music has this ambient, soundscapey vibe where she uses her vocals as an instrument. Full disclosure, I've been listening to Juliana ever since being a choir nerd in high school. But for this project that I came to speak with her about, she used more than that. Synths, pads, and a tool she'd never played with before to trigger her sounds. I was just interested right away because I have never used AI. That was totally new territory. Ah, another AI story. Yeah, but for a really creative purpose. 
So what was this for? An album? No, actually, when she got this pitch, she was doing her best to avoid the album cycle. It tired her out. So what was the pitch? Get this. To compose a lobby score for a new hotel in the Lower East Side in Manhattan, which I should say is personal to Juliana. She lived in New York for 16 years before moving to L.A., and the Lower East Side played a big role in her development as an artist while she was here. Okay, that's cool. When I think of a hotel lobby score, though, I'm really thinking, like, standard piano. Yeah, like light, awkward jazz. Well, the twist with Juliana's score is she's got to use AI. To do what? To, like, arrange it. To take her sounds and trigger them based on what's going on in the sky overhead. Well, the idea was to have a camera perched on the roof of the hotel. So that camera would be always on, and the AI would be reading the information. The events would be an airplane going by in the sky, a bird flying by, clouds, bright sunshine, nighttime, like all of those things. The AI was formulated to read and understand what those particular events were. And these events corresponded with specific sounds she'd composed. She made five pieces in total, corresponding to different times of day. And together they play throughout the hotel, which is called Sister City, for a full 24 hours. Every day it's it's never going to be the same thing because... You know, one thing, one event is read by the AI, and that changes every day. And then that goes into the score, and it generates and evolves, so it's ever-changing. She had help on the technology front. A computer vision service on Microsoft's Azure Cloud sat behind the camera. But the compositional challenge was all on Juliana. So how did she compose something like this? Well, I just started from the beginning. I was kind of noodling around with synths and things like that and came up with chord progressions that that I liked and thought would fit and then built on top of that. So Juliana showed me her session for the morning piece. And when she did, I saw this matrix of audio clips. Each one labeled something like airplanes, sunshine, birds things that can be seen by the camera pointed at the New York sky. And she played me a little. Right, this is morning. Morning. I mean, what we just listened to was everything all at once. So it's all of the vocal tracks, all of the bass lines, all at once, all of the sample sounds for the events. So, you know, this, the sound of what's happening in the lobby is completely different from this. Okay, here we go. Sun and afternoon. That sounds sunny to me. 
So that was probably the thought process behind that, you know? Sounds like a very, like, light xylophone, kind of. I feel like I can really hear too that that's a New York sun as opposed to somewhere like here, <laughs> <laughs> like LA. Yeah, something kind of faint and like varying. I could hear that she's injected emotion and personality into these sounds, and that kind of humanizes all this technology sitting between her music and what visitors to the Sister City Hotel would eventually hear. Sister City opened in May 2019, which is when Juliana actually heard the piece, triggered by AI, for the first time. When I was listening to it for the first time, live in the space, live in the lobby, and finally being able to hear like what we'd all been working towards for so long, it was... It was really magical and wonderful in that I found myself immediately when I would hear a little ping or something, I was like, oh, wonder, wonder if that's a bird. And I wanted people in the space to be doing exactly what I immediately found myself doing, which was understanding the project and what the AI is doing to then be like, what was that? I wonder what that was. I think that makes the Sister City piece fundamentally different from the kind of music you hear in hotel lobbies. And not just on a technical level. It's ambient, but it's not passive. It's meant to bring you into a dialogue with the city, to draw your attention to the little random moments happening all around us. AI feels kind of like maybe my bandmate that never ever goes to sleep and can trigger the sounds that I've made and, you know, use whatever inputs it's gathering to kind of make things happen fresh and that I can't do because I'm not there. How much of this score feels yours? I would say... It's nearly 50-50 for me. I mean, I know that I provided all of the sounds, but the score would not be what it is without all of the other components. I really feel proud of this project. I feel like I did my best to fulfill all the requirements um, that were set, but I think that it has a soul at the same time probably peak gratifying too that it continues writing itself. I mean, it's just, that's just the coolest thing about this is that it's morphing as we speak in some way that I have no idea what it could be doing, you know, depending on what's happening in New York City skies right now. So it is cool. It lives on. It's just amazing to think how quickly this last year has gone by and, and, and it's kind of a sit-in for me since I moved away from New York and kind of like be sitting there in my favorite neighborhood of New York City. It's, it's pretty cool, bordering on emo. Definitely bordering on emo. Yeah, but isn't that wild? 
that AI can get you there to an emo state of being? I mean, I think what we learned from talking to these folks is that technology doesn't necessarily sanitize the creative process. Right? I mean, all these projects kind of seem to extend how we define music and how we get to experience it. Now, I'm sure that more traditional songwriting and concerts aren't going anywhere. I still love those things, and all the artists we spoke to, they do too. I mean, I'm with that. But the cool thing about these projects is that they really point toward a future where artists can have a different type of relationship with their fans. And fans can really have a different kind of relationship with the music. Totally. And with the wider world. Projects like these, they get us out of our headphones a little and really connect us in a new way. To learn more about all the people and stories featured in this episode, visit microsoft.com slash inculture. If you're dying to see what Bloom, Open Space, and Delka looked like in action, you can watch videos and view photos from the events. You'll also find a deeper dive into Juliana Barwick's Sister City score and the technology behind it. And for more sites from the series, find us on Instagram at Microsoft In Culture. In Culture is hosted by me, Becca DiGregorio, and Todd Whitney, produced by Jordan Rothline, and edited and mixed by Nat Wiener. Original music by Angular Wave Research. This episode also featured some beautiful music from Juliana Barwick's Sister City Score. Special thanks to the artist and Secretly Group for letting us use it. In Culture is a production of Microsoft in collaboration with Listen, a sensory experience company in New York City.